It's good to be with you this morning. It's kind of uh, interesting to be in a corner. That feels different. And um, I think I like the feel of it so far. I wouldn't mind having a couple stained glass windows up here or something, but so far I'm pretty happy with this. Uh, I do not have a New Year's message for you this morning. hope that's okay. Uh, in fact, I'll be um, kind of fulfilling a, a, a resolution from 2017. A couple months ago, I decided that I wanted to make sure that I finished our study of 1 John before the end of the year. So that's what we're going to try to do this morning. Um, so you can start turning to 1 John chapter 5, and we'll pick, off, pick up in verse 5 and go through the end of the, of the chapter, um, unless my voice gives out, then we'll just stop. Um, I do want to warn you ahead of time, this, this, is, this doesn't really feel like a sermon to me this morning, it feels more like a, a Bible study because of the nature of this passage, which is that there's a few questions in here that, are, that um, I feel like we need to kind of wrestle with a little bit, has some hard to understand spots that I'd like us to work through. And, and that working through those spots will take up most of our time. Major subjects of this passage are that those who believe in, in the Son have eternal life in Him. They have eternal life. Um, Delvin mentioned this in our Sunday school class. It's not just something that happens after you die. Uh, we have life in Him. He listens to our prayers. He protects us. And He deserves preeminence in our lives. And uh, so now we're going to read the passage. And actually, I'm going to ask Kurt to come up here and read this passage for us, just so that um, my voice lasts as long as possible. First John chapter 5, uh, I actually pick up in verse 5 and go through verse 21, reading out of the English Standard. <clears throat> who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ, not by water only, but by the water and the blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit and the water and the blood, and these three agree. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater, for this is the testimony of God that he has borne concerning his Son. Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar, because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his Son. And this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that ye may know that you have eternal life. And this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask him anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we have asked of him. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask God, and God will give him life to those who commit sins that do not lead to death. There is sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who was born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are from God, 
and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And we know that the Son of God has come and given us understanding so that we may know him who is true, and we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Thank you, Kurt. Now, just to pause while I get my foot rug up here. I'll try to keep that out of other people's way so it doesn't bother them. Now, uh, we're going to do kind of a, here's what we're going to do. We're going to, um, I'll just kind of walk you through this passage very quickly and, and pick out some of the, of the problem areas, just a quick overview of the passage, and then we'll look at um, about four questions, try to answer four questions in this passage you may not be happy with all of the answers because they're not cut and dried, but we'll, we'll look at that. And then after that, um, we'll have a little bit of time to look at how should we respond to this passage. And I've picked out um, four ways in which I think we should respond to what John says here in, in uh, 1 John chapter 5. Just kind of a quick overview of this passage. Uh, the hard spots are really verses 6 through 8 and verses 16 through 18 kind of come in two waves there. Our passage starts off in verse 6 by saying, Jesus came by water and blood, which is a question to start with. What is water and what is blood? Thank you, Carlin. And then going on, verses 7 through 8, um, those of you with King James Version and New King James Version are going to see um, a question right away, which is, why does this look so different in the King James and New King James versus um, the English Standard or the NIV or whatever other translation uh, we might be looking at this morning? Okay, what, and it looks like an important phrase is missing. So what's going on there? Uh, and then from there on, we've, we've got, got smooth sailing for a few verses. Um, John is talking about a testimony that is being made. He doesn't say what that testimony is specifically until verse 11. And he says, this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life and this life is in his son. He goes on to say, those who believe in the name of the son have eternal life. They have confidence that God will, will listen to their requests. And uh, such a request that God will listen to is this prayer for a brother who has committed a sin not leading to death. So now we're back into the hard stuff. What is a sin that leads to death? Is the death spiritual or is it physical? What is going on here? We will try wrestle with that a bit. And then verse 18 starts off by saying, everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning which is kind of an odd way to follow up what he's just talked about uh, because he's just talked about a brother committing a sin. But I think verse 18 is actually um, very helpful because it makes it clear in my mind that when John says um, everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, he's talking about uh, a, a Christian does not persist in sin, he does not make a practice of sinning. That is done away with when he becomes a Christian. It doesn't mean that he never sins again, quits altogether, and lives a perfect life from, 
from the moment he becomes a Christian. Continuing in verse 18, he who was born of God protects him and the evil one does not touch him. What does that mean? So some, some stuff, some tough spots here. And then verses 19 through, through the end are fairly um, easy reading again. Uh, John does end his letter a little bit abruptly, doesn't he? Um, more abruptly than any of his other writings. He, he just kind of wraps it up and he's done. But it's a fitting ending. We'll talk about that also. So let's, let's go through these, some of these questions first. Um, and I feel like even if... I'll basically share my opinion on some of these. And, and I feel like even if we're not 100% sure of what John is saying here, I feel like it's still helpful to look at some of the different options and understand what John may be saying. What are the water and the blood? How do they testify? Verse 6 says, This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ, not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. And speaking of water, I'm going to consume some. There are, I'll give you three theories. One theory is that John is talking about uh, referring to what was recorded in the gospel, his gospel, in John 19, verses 34 and 35. One of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. He who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth that you also may believe. The fact that Jesus' side was pierced was a pretty important event, and the testimony of the person who saw it was an important testimony. And water and blood came out. Maybe that's what John is referring to. The, the weakness that I see with this interpretation is that I'm not sure why John would um, emphasize he came not by water only, as in not just water came out, but also blood came out. I'm, I'm not sure why he would, he would make that emphasis. It could be that um, the water and blood that came out of Jesus' side were in themselves um, important um, symbolism. Maybe they re, uh, Matthew Henry, for example, says maybe the water uh, symbolized Jesus' sanctification, work of sanctification, and the blood uh, represented his atonement. And so if those were highly symbolic, then maybe... John could be talking about this event and saying he, he came um, in water and blood and, and refers to sanctification and atonement, possibly. I, I could buy into this theory. A second theory would be that it refers to baptism and communion, that, that Christ comes to us through the sacraments of baptism and communion, and Luther and Calvin would have believed this. There is one flaw with this theory, which you may have noticed already, is that... Um, John is speaking in the past tense here. He says, this is he who came by water and blood, as though the event is over with. And if it, and if it referred to baptism and communion, you would expect him to say maybe, this is he who comes through water and blood. A third theory is that it refers to Christ's baptism, water and blood, crucifixion. In John's time, we know that John was writing this letter um, 
partially in response to uh, false teaching, and it would seem to have been a, a, a form, an early form of Gnosticism was the false teaching he was writing against. It may have been there. One flavor of this false teaching was Corinthian uh, Gnosticism, which taught that Jesus received his divine nature at baptism. He wasn't really divine up till then, but this divine nature came on him at baptism, but it left right uh, before he was crucified. And if John was writing this letter specifically to, to um, push back against that form of false teaching, water and blood would line up pretty nicely with um, being a, 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 a counterattack to that false teaching, saying that, no, this was, Jesus was divine both at his baptism and at his crucifixion. He came to us through water and blood. One, one flaw with this theory might be just the fact that I don't know how strong the historical evidence is that, that John was specifically uh, writing against that form of false teaching. In fact, I'm a little suspicious that this verse may be one of the reasons why we think he's writing about that false teaching, which would kind of lead us in a circle, wouldn't it? <clears throat> but it, this, is, this is kind of my favorite, favorite theory, that the water refers to Jesus' baptism and the blood refers to his work on the cross. Um, how did the Spirit and the water and the blood testify? They would testify that God gave eternal life through Jesus. The Spirit of truth testifies. That's his nature and his role. He speaks truth. And if water and blood are referring to uh, Christ's baptism and crucifixion, those are both major events in Christ's mission on earth. They were widely witnessed. They were real historic events. They were accompanied by heavenly signs the voice from heaven, the spirit descending as a dove, the earthquake, the temple veil, and so on. So what are the water and blood? Probably Christ's baptism and crucifixion, in my mind. Next question, why are, why are verses 7 and 8 so different in the King James Version and the New King James? The English Standard Version reads this way, there are three that testify, the Spirit and the water and the blood, and these three agree. Pretty brief, actually. There's three that testify, the Spirit and the water and the blood, and these three agree. That's verses 7 and 8. King James Version says this, verse 7, For there are three that bear record. Up to this point, it reads essentially the same as the English Standard. But what comes next is a famous phrase known as the comma Johannium, Johann as in Johann Sebastian Bach, except it's referring to John here. Comma Johannium, and it starts like this. In heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost, and these three are one. And there are three that bear witness in earth. And that is the end now of the, of the comma Johannium. And, and from there on, the reading kind of matches the ESV again the spirit and the water and the blood and these three agree in one and so that phrase talks about the father the word and the holy ghost being one and and bearing witness in heaven and it is the subject of tremendous debate and if you don't believe me google it the question is of course did did john originally write this phrase and it was later left out by mistake 
Or did John not write this phrase, and it was later added by mistake? Uh, as as these, phrases, man, these Greek manuscripts were copied and recopied through the centuries by the scribes. Now, on the one hand, it could have been left out by mistake. In fact, the nature of this passage, these couple verses here, would make it look like a good candidate for that kind of mistake. Uh, imagine you are a third century scribe painfully making a copy of this letter. And it was painful, by the way. It, it was hard. They did not have nice pens and, or paper. This book here, uh, the story behind the versions, is, is a book by Rodney Yoder. It's very easy to read and fun reading if you're interested about versions. And uh, I think you should all get your hands on it. He does not talk about the Kama Yohanium, I don't think. But uh, he talks about this, this painful process the scribes went through of copying these manuscripts over and over by hand. And, um, at the end, and he mentioned some of the notes that the scribes left behind on their manuscripts. For, ex for example, one guy wrote, this is just his comment um, at the end of the manuscript. He says, if you do not know what writing is, you may think it is not especially difficult. Let me tell you that it is an arduous task. It destroys your eyesight, bends your spine, squeezes your stomach and your sides, pinches your lower back, and makes your whole body ache. It was tough. So imagine you are a scribe um, copying this letter of, of John's, and you have just, you, you've just started in verse 7. Okay, now we're, we're, I'm, I'm trying to explain how, how this could have been left out. So we just started in verse 7, and um, you, you wrote the words, there are three that bear witness. And then a rat runs across your foot and you get distracted. And after you kind of settle back down again and pick up your pen or quill, um, and you look at John's letter and your eye catches, there are three that bear and you're looking at verse 8 now, not verse 7, and you pick up where you think you've left off, but actually you're in verse 8, and you missed, a, you missed an important phrase, and you're going to cause centuries of argument just because of that. That's how it could have been left out. It, that's, that's, that could have happened. Uh, this, this is the kind of mistake that scribes could make. They were, they were really they were unsung heroes but they didn't make innocent mistakes. How could have it been added by mistake? Well, um, a scribe could have added it as, as a note of explanation or as kind of a commentary uh, in the manuscript. They did, they did do this uh, from time to time. They would make a note um, often, often on the margin. And if they made a note like that, and the next scribe that came along and found this manuscript, you know, 50, 100 years later and made a copy of it, might have made a mistake and not realized this was not really in the original and it's not supposed to be included as though it is part of the original. And so, but he goes along and includes it, and from then on, it's been added. So I don't think, I don't think that whatever variation Whoever is to blame here, I don't think it was intentional or even, um, you know, I don't think there was any uh, conspiracy going on here. I think it was an innocent mistake one way or another. Somebody made a mistake. Now, the King James Version and the New King James Versions are both based on 
a compilation of Greek manuscripts called the Textus Receptus. Most of you are familiar with that, that term. It was a, the Textus Receptus was assembled by a, a Dutch Catholic priest named Erasmus back in 1516, and the first two editions of his Textus Receptus did not contain this comma Johannium because he didn't have any Greek manuscripts that contained it. And he did get some flack for not uh, including it in his Textus Receptus, and someone did provide him with a Greek manuscript that contained it. So he, in his third edition, he added it, although some would say he added it with some suspicion. But the, the problem was the Greek manuscript he used um, that, that contained it was a 14th century manuscript, which would be fairly late, uh, fairly recent manuscript. In fact, it is not found in any Greek manuscripts older than 14th century, although it would be in earlier Latin manuscripts. But, um, and, the, and the New King James Version would, would say, for example, in the margin, only four or five very late manuscripts contain these, these words in the Greek. And that's four or five out of what I think would be about, would be hundreds of manuscripts. So my opinion is that John probably did not write this. I think it probably would have shown up in more than just four or five Greek manuscripts if he had. But it's possible that he did. So we, we, we don't know 100% sure. But just to be clear, uh, I do believe in the Trinity. Uh, and the idea of the Trinity is well supported in the Bible without, even without this phrase. In fact, if you looked at the end of today's passage, right toward the end there in verse 20, it talks about, We are in Him who is true, in His Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. which I think is a pretty powerful statement about Jesus' divinity and being one with God. So let's move on to our next question. We're going to jump down to um, verse 16. What is a sin that leads to death? And is this talking about physical or spiritual death? This is, this is kind of a tough one. Um, I'll just make a few general observations that I see here that I think we'd probably all agree on, and maybe that'll help us lead us toward an answer. One thing that John seems to be saying is some sins are apparently worse than others. Some sins are worse than others. All sin, another conclusion I make is that all sin is damaging. On, on the one hand, some sin leads to death, and we're in, and um, on the other hand, there's this other category of sin that does not lead to death. However, we are encouraged to pray so that life would be given to that person who sinned in a way that does not lead to death. So whether it leads to death or whether it leads to someone being in a place where we should pray for him, the sin has caused damage. All sin is damaging. We're going to talk about whether that damage is physical or spiritual. Uh, another point would be that John seems to expect his readers to know the difference between a sin that leads to death and one that does not because he makes it clear that his promise is for the one kind and not the other. Also, John does not 
does not explicitly forbid us to pray for someone who has committed this sentence and death. He doesn't say, don't pray for this guy. He's just saying, I do not say that one should pray for that. To me, he's saying, I'm not talking about that kind of sin. The promise I'm giving you does not apply to that kind of sin. It would appear to me that it is possible for a Christian to commit a sin that leads to death. Now, John might be using the word brother here in verse 16. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he might be using the word brother in a, in a loose kind of way as in referring to not just a real brother, but someone who is just kind of a professing Christian but is not actually a Christian. Someone, someone believe that. Um, but it is... Um, by far, John uses the word brother to refer to a Christian. He typically does not use brother to refer to professing Christians. And the context of this is a brother to whom life can be given. So I, I feel like he is talking about a brother who is a Christian. Now, is the is this damage here caused by sin, is it physical or is it spiritual? It, it could be physical. Ananias and Sapphira. There's an example. Uh, the, here's a better example. It would be the Corinthians who were eating of the Lord's Supper unworthily. And some of them got sick and some of them died. So it could be physical. The, the main problem that I have with, with the physical interpretation is that, is that to me, if, if the sin that leads to death is talking about physical death, then the life that John's talking about also would, would, would refer to physical life. And so, um, and, and we talked about the fact that he seems to be saying that all sin has a negative effect. So if we're talking in physical terms here, it would mean that um, every time a believer sins, it has a negative effect on someone's physical well-being, on their health. And sins that don't lead to death would result in maybe some kind of illness. And sins that lead to death would actually end up killing a person. Now, it's possible that kind of thing happens and we just haven't connected the dots yet. Um, I, 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 it doesn't seem to me like, like um, we have witnessed that. I don't feel like I have seen that going on. So um, it could mean spiritual death also. John talks in terms of spiritual life and death in this letter. He's written in 1 John 3, 14. He, he says, We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. And in this chapter, John has already talked about life several times in what is clearly a spiritual sense, spiritual life. And we do know that it is possible, spiritual death is possible in the sense of someone who has offended the Holy Spirit to the point that he is beyond reach, beyond forgiveness. So there is a, there is a spiritual death already, I think, uh, presented in the, in the Bible. And so in my mind here, uh, spiritual death fits, fits better than physical death. What type of sin is he talking about? 1 Corinthians 6 and Galatians 5 are, are chapters in which Paul lists sins that will keep someone from inheriting the kingdom of God. 
And I think John would agree with Paul and say that anyone who persists in these kinds of sins will not see the kingdom of God. If you look at those lists of sins, there's hardly any sin that doesn't fall into those categories. Um, so if John is saying anytime someone commits this kind of sin, it's a sin that leads to, that, to death, it's, it doesn't leave us with many sins left to pray for uh, as far as praying for life. And so I, my conclusion is that I think the sin that leads to death is not talking about one specific act, but a willful persistence in one of these sins that will keep a person from inheriting the kingdom of God. When we see someone willfully persisting in sin, it's possible that it, will do, uh, it may do that person good for us to pray for him. In fact, I think we ought to pray for them. But it will not give that person life in the sense that John is talking about in this letter. God is going to have to get a hold of that person. That person is going to have to choose to come back to God. Okay, so this passage is, is difficult to understand, but it, it shouldn't keep us from seeing that John is, um, is really giving a, a beautiful promise here that um, prayer can bring life to one who has not sinned unto death. God will answer that prayer. What does it mean to not be touched by Satan? This is our fourth question. Verse 18, we know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who was born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. What does it mean that Satan can't touch us? Can Satan tempt us? I think so. He tempted Jesus, who was tempted like as we are. I think Satan can tempt us. Can we give in to that temptation? Yes. Can we sin unto death? I think verse 16 says that. And, and so I, I think this verse about protection is emphasizing what Satan cannot do, not so much what we cannot do. So if Satan can tempt us and we can still sin and even abandon Christ, what does that leave left? I mean, what advantage do we have over those who are not Christians? Well, to begin with, Satan can't snatch us out of God's hand, out of Jesus' hand. Jesus said that in John 10, 28. But those who are in the world are under Satan's power, and he would love to bring us back into his realm, but he can't. He cannot yank us back out of the grip of Jesus into his hands. And secondly, and, and, I, and I think this is what John is really driving at here, because you'll notice here, this phrase here starts off in verse 18, we know that everyone who's been born of God does not keep on sinning. And the reason is because we are under Christ's protection. And, and I think the big difference is here, Satan cannot make us sin. We are not his servants anymore. We are able to break this habit of sin. We're able to live, um, we are able to live lives that are pleasing to God. Verse 19, we know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one, whereas we are not under his power. Okay, so we've kind of waded through the question, questions. 
And uh, I hope we have a, a bit of a better handle on what is going on in this passage. I want to briefly look at four ways in which we ought to respond to this passage. I think the first way in which we ought to respond is to um, treasure, treasure your life in the Son. Realize that you have life in the Son and not any other way. You do not have life in yourselves. He gave his life for us, and he continues to give his life to us. We are not like scuba divers. Scuba divers are equipped with their own air supply attached to them. They're able to um, go down and do whatever they want in the water, and they've got their own air supply. But another kind of diving is called surface-applied diving. The diver is something that's called an umbilical Sound familiar? An umbilical that supplies them with air from the surface. And that's how a lot of underwater welding would take place with this surface-applied uh, air. And bad things can happen. That supply can get twisted, cut, caught in a boat propeller. It's actually a dangerous job to take. Underwater welding, don't take that job. Um, people can die if, they, if their air supply is cut off and they run out of time. And they have. No matter how good a life we may try to live, if we're not abiding in the sun, we do not have that supply of life, and we're going to eventually die. So thank God for life in the sun, and do nothing that would harm that, that uh, flow of life, and abide in him. Care about it as much as an underwater welder would care about his air supply. A second response is to pray for your brother's life. All wrongdoing is sin. All wrongdoing does perform damage. Uh, but God has given us a means through prayer to bring healing to each other, whether it's spiritual or physical, I think it's, and I think it's spiritual. If we see our brother doing something that we think is sinful, or maybe if we just are worried that it's borderline, I don't think we have to be 100% sure that it's sin and 100% sure you know, what category it falls into even. I think a very natural response ought to be for us to pray for our brothers. John doesn't specifically say what we should be asking for. Maybe we should just say, uh, maybe we should just ask for life. John says, he shall ask and God will give him life. But pray for that brother's relationship with God that it would not be damaged, and that God would bring um, repentance and healing, that wounds would be healed. Um, maybe you want to pray, Lord, it looks like he is doing something wrong here. It looks like he's in the wrong, like he's made a misstep. Um, I pray for life and healing, and it's, I pray for spiritual life for this man. Don't just warn your brother. Pray for him also. And don't just pray for him, warn him also. Both are important. It's just fascinating to me how much God has entrusted to us through prayer. I mean, what would happen if we had one church over here who, where the brothers never prayed for each other, never, never saw you know, the sin in each other's lives and never responded about it with prayer? And what, how, how much better, how much worse off would they be than a church over here where they are constantly praying for each other and, and concerned about each other's needs and praying for this kind of life. 
I think it would be a huge difference in the, in the well-being of these two churches. So let's make sure we're the praying kind of church. Pray for your brother's life. There's, we just went through the season of gift giving. Uh, what greater gift can you give to a, a struggling, struggling brother than prayer? Uh, a third response would be to be confident in the protection and power of Christ. Because of his power, his protection, you can live for him and not live for Satan. Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. Earlier on in this chapter, John says, His commandments are not burdensome, for everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. The world is in the power of the evil one, and certainly some would seem to be more under his power than others. But we are not under Satan's power. He cannot touch us, and we should celebrate that. And an especially appropriate appropriate form of celebration would be holy living. Be confident in the protection and power of Christ. And finally, keep yourselves from idols. I think one of the first times I remember reading this verse, this closing of, of um, this letter by John, I think I kind of bust out laughing reading this last verse because it's so abrupt and it seems kind of random. Just Keep yourselves from idols. And I can imagine maybe some, some idol worshipers reading this letter and thinking they're, they're getting, getting away with it till the very end. Keep yourself from idols. But it is not a random point. And um, it actually fits very well with what he's saying in this passage. He's saying in this passage, life is in the Son. We are in Him who is true. He is the true God. He is the eternal life. And realizing that, believing that, Keep yourselves from idols is a very natural and fitting outcome. Now wait a minute, I thought, I thought Jesus was going to keep me. Apparently we are part of the keeping process too. In Jude, um, Jude says, keep yourselves in the love of God, he says. But he also says, he refers to Jesus as him who is able to keep you from stumbling. So keep yourself from anything that would supplant the one true God, anything that would encroach upon your life in the Son. And I have to think back about what John talked about in chapter 2. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. So my, to, to recap those four points, I think the four ways we ought to respond, and you will probably see more, is to... Um, Treasure your life in the sun and, and, and protect it. And one of those outcomes would be keeping yourselves from idols. And another response is for us to pray for each other and realize how much, I mean, if you just read what John talks about prayer doing for each other, it's, it's pretty powerful here. Uh, it's a powerful promise, and it's too bad it gets overshadowed by some of the confusion around it about what exactly he's talking about. But we ought to pray for each other and realize it makes a powerful difference. And then, um, now I've lost my place. What was my third point? Be confident in the protection and power of the Son and realize that, that He cares about you, He listens to your requests, and that um, in that, in that 
keeping power, um, he can keep you from, from Satan. Satan cannot force you to sin. You, you have more power than, than he has because of the Spirit living in you. Um, I would just like to pray real quickly here. Dear Lord, I, I thank you for this letter of 1 John, and I just thank you for the, the treasure that's in it. And I pray that, that um, we would value the truth that's in it and apply it to our lives. Help us to um, find confidence in your protection and uh, help us to pray for each other and help us most of all to value the relationship that we have with you. Amen. Let's have a song.